Ah, the things we'll do when we're driven to our limits. Burglary? For a lord of the realm? I'm not saying it's completely out of the question. P.G. Woodhouse, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. The vintage episodes are back. Check us out on Tuesday for part two of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Christmas on Tuesdays, romantic comedy on Fridays. Who could ask for anything more? Please become a monthly supporter and help us to keep this good thing going. Please go to classictalesaudiobooks.com and become a monthly supporter for as little as $5 a month. As a thank you gesture, we'll send you a coupon code every month for at least $8 off any audiobook order. At the end of last week's episode, Spike had proactively stolen Lady Julia's diamond necklace, and Jimmy planned to put it back during the theatricals that evening. And now, The Intrusion of Jimmy, Part 6 of 7, by P.G. Woodhouse. Chapter 23. Family Jars Hildebrand Spencer Pointe de Berg John Hanneseed Coombe Crombie, 12th Earl of Drever, was feeling like a toad under the harrow. He read the letter again, but a second perusal made it no better. Very briefly and clearly, Molly had broken off the engagement. She thought it best. She was afraid it could make neither of us happy. All very true, thought his lordship miserably. His sentiments to a T. At the proper time, he would have liked nothing better. But why seize for this declaration the precise moment when he was intending, on the strength of the engagement, to separate his uncle from twenty pounds? That was what rankled. That Molly could have no knowledge of his sad condition did not occur to him. He had a sort of feeling that she ought to have known by instinct. Nature as has been pointed out, had equipped Hildebrand Spencer Pointeberg with one of those cheap substitute minds. What passed for brain in him was to genuine grey matter, as just as good imitation coffee is to real mocha. In moments of emotion and mental stress, consequently, his reasoning, like Spike's, was apt to be in a class of its own. He read the letter for the third time, and a gentle perspiration began to form on his forehead. This was awful. The presumable jubilation of Katie, the penniless ripper of the Savoy, when he should present himself to her a free man, did not enter into the mental picture that was unfolding before him. She was too remote. Between him and her lay the fearsome figure of Sir Thomas, rampant, filling the entire horizon. Nor is this to be wondered at. There was probably a brief space during which Perseus, concentrating his gaze upon the monster, did not see Andromeda, and a knight of the Middle Ages, jousting in the gentleman's singles for a smile from his lady, rarely allowed the thought of that smile to occupy his whole mind at the moment when his boiler-plated antagonist was descending upon him in the wake of a sharp spear. 
so with Spenny Drever. Bright eyes might shine for him when all was over, but in the meantime, what seemed to him more important was that bulging eyes would glare. If only this had happened later, even a day later. The reckless impulsiveness of the modern girl had undone him. How was he to pay Hargate the money? Hargate must be paid, that was certain. No other course was possible. Lord Drevers was not one of those natures that fret restlessly under debt. During his early career at college, he had endeared himself to the local tradesmen by the magnitude of the liabilities he had contracted with them. It was not the being in debt that he minded. It was the consequences. Hargate, he felt instinctively, was of a revengeful nature. He had given Hargate twenty pounds worth of snubbing, and the latter had presented the bills. If it were not paid, things would happen. Hargate and he were members of the same club, and a member of a club who loses money at cards to a fellow member and fails to settle up does not make himself popular with the committee. He must get the money. There was no avoiding that conclusion. But how? Financially, his lordship was like a fallen country with a glorious history. There had been a time, during his first two years at college, when he had reveled in the luxury of a handsome allowance. This was the golden age, when Sir Thomas Blunt, being, so to speak, new to the job, and feeling that, having reached the best circles, he must live up to them, had scattered largesse lavishly. For two years after his marriage with Lady Julia, he had maintained this admirable standard, crushing his natural parsimony. He had regarded the money so spent as capital sunk in an investment. By the end of the second year, he had found his feet and began to look about him for ways of retrenchment. His lordship's allowance was an obvious way. He had not to wait long for an excuse for annihilating it. There is a game called poker, at which a man without much control over his features may exceed the limits of the handsomest allowance. His lordship's face during a game of poker was like the surface of some quiet pond, ruffled by every breeze. The blank despair of his expression when he held bad cards made bluffing expensive. The honest joy that bubbled over in his eyes when his hand was good acted as an efficient danger signal to his grateful opponents. Two weeks of poker had led to his writing to his uncle a distressed but confident request for more funds, and the avuncular foot had come down with a joyous bang. Taking his stand on the evils of gambling, Sir Thomas had changed the conditions of the money market for his nephew with a thoroughness that effectively prevented the possibility of the youth's being again caught by the fascinations of poker. The allowance vanished absolutely, and in its place there came into being an arrangement. By this, his lordship was to have whatever money he wished, but he must ask for it and state why it was needed. If the request were reasonable, the cash would be forthcoming. If preposterous, it would not. The flaw in the scheme, from his lordship's point of view, was the difference of opinion that can exist in the minds of two men as to what the words reasonable and preposterous may be taken to mean. Twenty pounds, for instance, would, in the lexicon of Sir Thomas Blunt, be perfectly reasonable for the current expenses of a man engaged to Molly McEachern, but preposterous for one 
to whom she had declined to remain engaged. It is these subtle shades of meaning that make the English language so full of pitfalls for the foreigner. So engrossed was his lordship in his meditations that a voice spoke at his elbow ere he became aware of Sir Thomas himself, standing by his side. "'Well, Spenny, my boy,' said the knight, "'time to dress for dinner, I think, eh, eh?' He was plainly in high good humour. The thought of the distinguished company he was to entertain that night had changed him temporarily, as with some wave of a fairy wand, into a thing of joviality and benevolence. One could almost hear the milk of human kindness gurgling and splashing within him. The irony of fate. Tonight, such was his mood, a dutiful nephew could have come and felt in his pockets and helped himself. If circumstances had been different... Oh, woman, woman, how you bar us from paradise. His lordship gurgled a wordless reply, thrusting the fateful letter hastily into his pocket. He would break the news anon. Soon, not yet, later on. In fact, anon. Up in your part, my boy, continued Sir Thomas. You mustn't spoil the play by forgetting your lines. That wouldn't do. His eye was caught by the envelope that Spenny had dropped. A momentary lapse from the jovial and benevolent was the result. His fussy little soul abhorred small untidinesses. Dear me, he said, stooping, I wish people would not drop paper about the house. I cannot endure a litter. He spoke as if somebody had been playing hare and hounds and scattering the scent on the stairs. This sort of thing sometimes made him regret the old days. In blunt stores, Rule 67 imposed a fine of half a crown on employees convicted of paper-dropping. I... began his lordship. Why? Sir Thomas straightened himself. It's addressed to you. I was just going to pick it up. It's a... there was a note in it. Sir Thomas gazed at the envelope again. Joviality and benevolence resumed their thrones. And in a feminine handwriting, he chuckled. He eyed the limp peer almost roguishly. I see, I see, he said. Very charming, quite delightful. Girls must have their little romance. I suppose you two young people are exchanging love letters all day. Delightful, quite delightful. Don't look as if you were ashamed of it, my boy. I like it. I think it's charming. Undoubtedly, this was the opening. Beyond a question, his lordship should have said at this point, "'Uncle, I cannot tell a lie. "'I cannot even allow myself to see you labouring under a delusion "'which a word from me can remove. "'The contents of this note are not what you suppose. "'They run as follows.' "'What he did say was, "'Uncle, can you let me have twenty pounds?' "'Those were his amazing words. "'They slipped out. "'He could not stop them. "'Sir Thomas was taken aback for an instant, but not seriously. "'He started as might a man who— Stroking a cat receives a sudden but trifling scratch. Twenty pounds, eh? he said reflectively. Then the milk of human kindness swept over displeasure like a tidal wave. This was a night for rich gifts to the deserving. Why, certainly, my boy, certainly. Do you want it at once? His lordship replied that he did, please, and he had seldom said anything more fervently. Well, well, we'll see what we can do. Come with me. He led the way to his dressing room. Like nearly all the rooms at the castle, it was large. 
One wall was completely hidden by the curtain behind which Spike had taken refuge that afternoon. Sir Thomas went to the dressing table and unlocked a small drawer. Twenty, you said? Five, ten, fifteen? Here you are, my boy. Lord Drever muttered his thanks. Sir Thomas accepted the guttural acknowledgement with a friendly pat on the shoulder. I like a little touch like that, he said. His lordship looked startled. I wouldn't have touched you, he began, if it hadn't been a little touch like that letter-writing, Sir Thomas went on. It shows a warm heart. She is a warm-hearted girl, Spenny, a charming, warm-hearted girl. You're uncommonly lucky, my boy. His lordship, crackling the four banknotes, silently agreed with him. But come, I must be dressing. Dear me, it is very late. We shall have to hurry. By the way, my boy, I shall take the opportunity of making a public announcement of the engagement tonight. It will be a capital occasion for it. I think perhaps at the conclusion of the theatricals, a little speech, something quite impromptu and informal, just asking them to wish you happiness and so on. I like the idea. There is an old-world air about it that appeals to me. Yes. He turned to the dressing table and removed his collar. Well, run along, my boy, he said. You must not be late. His lordship tottered from the room. He did quite an unprecedented amount of thinking as he hurried into his evening clothes, but the thought occurring most frequently was that, whatever happened, all was well in one way at any rate. He had the twenty pounds. There would be something colossal in the shape of disturbances when his uncle learned the truth. It would be the biggest thing since the San Francisco earthquake. But what of it? He had the money. He slipped it into his waistcoat pocket. He would take it down with him and pay Hargate directly after dinner. He left the room. The flutter of a skirt caught his eye as he reached the landing. A girl was coming down the corridor on the other side. He waited at the head of the stairs to let her go down before him. As she came on to the landing, he saw that it was Molly. For a moment there was an awkward pause. Um, I got your note, said his lordship. She looked at him and then burst out laughing. You know, you don't mind the least little bit, she said. Not a scrap now, do you? Well, you see, don't make excuses, do you? Well, it's like this. You see, I... He caught her eye. Next moment, they were laughing together. No, but look here, you know, said his lordship. What I mean is, it isn't that I don't... I mean, look here, there's no reason why we shouldn't be the best of pals. Why, of course there isn't. No, really, I say, that's ripping. Shake hands on it. They clasped hands, and it was in this affecting attitude that Sir Thomas Blunt, bustling downstairs, discovered them. Aha! he cried archly. Well, 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 but don't mind me, don't mind me. Molly flushed uncomfortably, partly because she disliked Sir Thomas even when he was not arch and hated him when he was, partly because she felt foolish, and principally because she was bewildered. She had not looked forward to meeting Sir Thomas that night. It was always unpleasant to meet him, but it would be more unpleasant than usual after she had upset the scheme for which he had worked so earnestly. She had wondered whether he would be cold and distant or voluble and heated. In her pessimistic moments, she had anticipated a long and painful scene. That he should be behaving like this was not very much short of a miracle. She could not understand it. A glance at Lord Drever enlightened her. 
that miserable creature was wearing the air of a timid child about to pull a large cracker. He seemed to be bracing himself up for an explosion. She pitied him sincerely. So he had not told his uncle the news yet. Of course, he had scarcely had time. Saunders must have given him the note as he was going up to dress. There was, however, no use in prolonging the agony. Sir Thomas must be told sooner or later. She was glad of the chance to tell him herself. She would be able to explain that it was all her doing. I'm afraid there's a mistake, she said. Eh? said Sir Thomas. I've been thinking it over, and I came to the conclusion that we weren't... Well, I broke off the engagement. Sir Thomas' always prominent eyes protruded still further. The color of his florid face deepened. Suddenly he chuckled. Molly looked at him, amazed. Sir Thomas was indeed behaving unexpectedly tonight. I see it, he wheezed. You're having a joke with me. So this is what you were hatching as I came downstairs. Don't tell me. If you had really thrown him over, you wouldn't have been laughing together like that. It's no good, my dear. I might have been taken in if I had not seen you, but I did. No, no, cried Molly. You're wrong. You're quite wrong. When you saw us, we were just agreeing that we should be very good friends, that was all. I broke off the engagement before that. I... She was aware that his lordship had emitted a hollow croak, but she took it as his method of endorsing her statement, not as a warning. I wrote Lord Drever a note this evening, she went on, telling him that I couldn't possibly. She broke off in alarm. With the beginning of her last speech, Sir Thomas had begun to swell. Until now... He looked as if he were in imminent danger of bursting. His face was purple. To Molly's lively imagination, his eyes appeared to move slowly out of his head like a snail's. From the back of his throat came strange noises. So? He stammered. He gulped and tried again. So this, he said. So this, so that was what was in that letter, eh? Lord Drever a limp bundle against the banisters, smiled weakly. Eh? yelled Sir Thomas. His lordship started convulsively. Uh, yes, he said. Yes, yes, that was it, don't you know? Sir Thomas eyed his nephew with a baleful stare. Molly looked from one to the other in bewilderment. There was a pause, during which Sir Thomas seemed partially to recover command of himself. Doubts as to the propriety of a family row in mid-stairs appeared to occur to him. He moved forward. Come with me, he said with awful curtness. His lordship followed, bonelessly. Molly watched them go, and wondered more than ever. There was something behind this. It was not merely the breaking off of the engagement that had roused Sir Thomas. He was not a just man but he was just enough to be able to see that the blame was not Lord Drever's. There had been something more. She was puzzled. In the hall, Saunders was standing, weapon in hand, about to beat the gong. Not yet, snapped Sir Thomas. Wait! Dinner had been ordered especially early that night because of the theatricals. The necessity for strict punctuality had been straightly enjoined upon Saunders. At some inconvenience, he had ensured strict punctuality. And now, but we all have our cross to bear in this world. Saunders bowed with dignified resignation. 
Sir Thomas led the way into his study. Be so good as to close the door, he said. His lordship was so good. Sir Thomas backed to the mantelpiece and stood there in the attitude which for generations has been sacred to the elderly Briton, feet well apart, hands clasped beneath his coattails. His stare raked Lord Drever like a searchlight. Now, sir, he said. His lordship wilted before the gaze. The fact is, uncle, never mind the facts, I know them. What I require is an explanation. He spread his feet further apart. The years had rolled back, and he was plain Thomas Blunt again of Blunt's stores, dealing with an erring employee. You know what I mean, he went on. I am not referring to the breaking off of the engagement. What I insist upon learning is your reason for failing to inform me earlier of the contents of that letter. His lordship said that somehow, don't you know, there didn't seem to be a chance, you know. He had several times been on the point, but, well, somehow, well, that's how it was. No chance, cried Sir Thomas. Indeed. Why did you require that money I gave you? Oh, er... Uh, I wanted it for something. Very possibly. For what? I... The fact is, I owed it to a fellow. Ha! How did you come to owe it? His lordship shuffled. You have been gambling! boomed Sir Thomas. Am I right? No, no. I say, no, no, I wasn't gambling. It was a game of skill. We were playing piquet. Kindly refrain from quibbling. You lost this money at cards, then, as I supposed. Just so. He widened the space between his feet. He intensified his glare. He might have been posing to an illustrator of Pilgrim's Progress for a picture of Apollyon straddling right across the way. So, he said, you deliberately concealed from me the contents of that letter in order that you might extract money from me under false pretenses. Don't speak, his lordship had gurgled. You did. Your behavior was that of a... of a... There was a very fair selection of evildoers in all branches of business from which to choose. He gave the preference to the racetrack. Of a common Welsher, he concluded. But I won't put up with it. No, not for an instant. I insist upon your returning that money to me here and now. If you have not got it with you, go and fetch it. His lordship's face betrayed the deepest consternation. He had been prepared for much, but not for this. That he would have to undergo what in his school days he would have called a jaw was inevitable, and he had been ready to go through with it. It might hurt his feelings, possibly, but it would leave his purse intact. A ghastly development of this kind he had not foreseen. But I say, uncle, he bleated. Sir Thomas silenced him with a grand gesture. Ruefully, his lordship produced his little all. Sir Thomas took it with a snort and went to the door. Saunders was still brooding statuesquely over the gong. Sound it, said Sir Thomas. Saunders obeyed him with the air of an unleashed hound. And now, said Sir Thomas, go to my dressing room and place these notes in the small drawer of the table. The butler's calm, expressionless, yet withal observant eye took in at a glance the signs of trouble. Neither the inflated air of Sir Thomas nor the punctured balloon-bearing of Lord Drever escaped him. "'Something up,' he said to his immortal soul as he moved upstairs. 
been a fair old, rare old row, seems to me. He reserved his more polished periods for use in public. In conversation with his immortal soul, he was wont to unbend somewhat. Chapter 24 The Treasure Seeker Gloom wrapped his lordship about during dinner, as with a garment. He owed twenty pounds. His assets amounted to seven shillings and fourpence. He thought and thought again. Quite an intellectual pallor began to appear on his normally pink cheeks. Saunders, silently sympathetic, he hated Sir Thomas as an interloper, and entertained for his lordship, under whose father also he had served, a sort of paternal fondness, was ever at his elbow with the magic bottle, and to Spenny, emptying and re-emptying his glass almost mechanically, wine, the healer, brought an idea. To obtain twenty pounds from any one person of his acquaintance was impossible. To divide the twenty by four and persuade a generous quartet to contribute five pounds apiece was more feasible. Hope began to stir within him again. Immediately after dinner, he began to flit about the castle like a family specter of active habits. The first person he met was Charteris. Hello, Spenny, said Charteris. I wanted to see you. It is currently reported that you are in love. At dinner you looked as if you had influenza. What's your trouble? For goodness sake, bear up till the show's over. Don't go swooning on the stage or anything. Do you know your lines? The fact is, said his lordship eagerly, it's this way. I happen to want... Can you lend me a fiver? All I have in the world at this moment, said Charteris, is eleven shillings and a postage stamp. If the stamp would be of any use to you as a start, no. You know, it's from small beginnings like that that great fortunes are amassed. However... Two minutes later, Lord Drever had resumed his hunt. The path of the borrower is a thorny one, especially if, like Spenny, his reputation as a payer-back is not of the best. Spenny, in his time, had extracted small loans from most of his male acquaintances, rarely repaying the same. He had a tendency to forget that he had borrowed half a crown here to pay a cab and ten shillings there to settle up for a dinner, and his memory was not much more retentive of larger sums. This made his friends somewhat wary. The consequence was that the great treasure hunt was a failure from start to finish. He got friendly smiles, he got honeyed apologies, he got earnest assurances of goodwill, but he got no money, except from Jimmy Pitt. He had approached Jimmy in the early stages of the hunt, and Jimmy, being in the mood when he would have loaned anything to anybody, yielded the required five pounds without a murmur. But what was five pounds? The garment of gloom and the intellectual pallor were once more prominent when his lordship repaired to his room to don the loud tweeds, which, as Lord Herbert, he was to wear in the first act. There is a good deal to be said against stealing as a habit, but it cannot be denied that in certain circumstances it offers an admirable solution of a financial difficulty. And, if the penalties were not so exceedingly unpleasant, it is probable that it would become far more fashionable than it is. His lordship's mind did not turn immediately to this outlet from his embarrassment. He had never stolen before and it did not occur to him directly to do so now. There was a conservative strain in all of us. But gradually, as it was borne in upon him that it was the only course possible, 
unless he were to grovel before Hargate on the morrow and ask for time to pay, an unthinkable alternative. He found himself contemplating the possibility of having to secure the money by unlawful means. By the time he had finished his theatrical toilet, he had definitely decided that this was the only thing to be done. His plan was simple. He knew where the money was, in the dressing table, in Sir Thomas's room. He had heard Saunders instructed to put it there. What could be easier than to go and get it? Everything was in his favor. Sir Thomas would be downstairs receiving his guests. The coast would be clear. Why, it was like finding the money. Besides, he reflected, as he worked his way through the bottle of mums which he had the forethought to abstract from the supper table as a nerve steadier, it wasn't really stealing. Dash it all, the man had given him the money. It was his own. He had half a mind, he poured himself out another glass of the elixir, to give Sir Thomas a jolly good talking to into the bargain. Yes, dash it all. He shot his cuffs fiercely. The British lion was roused. A man's first crime is, as a rule, a shockingly amateurish affair. Now and then, it is true, we find beginners forging with the accuracy of old hands, breaking into houses with the finish of experts. But these are isolated cases. The average Tyro lacks generalship altogether. Spenny Drever may be cited as a typical novice. It did not strike him that inquiries might be instituted by Sir Thomas when he found the money gone, and that suspicion might conceivably fall upon himself. Courage may be born of champagne, but rarely prudence. The theatricals began at half-past eight with a duologue. The audience had been hustled into their seats, happier than usual in such circumstances, owing to the rumor which had been circulated that the proceedings were to terminate with an informal dance. The castle was singularly well constructed for such a purpose. There was plenty of room and a sufficiency of retreat for those who sat out, in addition to a conservatory large enough to have married off half the couples in the county. Spenny's idea had been to establish an alibi by mingling with the throng for a few minutes and then to get through his burglarious specialty during the duologue when his absence would not be noticed. It might be that if he disappeared later in the evening, people would wonder what had become of him. He lurked about until the last of the audience had taken their seats. As he was moving off through the hall, a hand fell upon his shoulder. Conscience makes cowards of us all. Spenny bit his tongue and leaped three inches into the air. Hello, Charteris, he said gaspingly. Charteris appeared to be in a somewhat overwrought condition. Rehearsals had turned him into a pessimist, and now that the actual moment of production had arrived, his nerves were in a thoroughly jumpy condition, especially as the duologue was to begin in two minutes, and the obliging person who had undertaken to prompt had disappeared. Spenny, said Charteris, where are you off to? What? What do you mean? I was just going upstairs. No, you don't. You've got to come and prompt. That devil Blake has vanished. I'll wring his neck. Come along. Spenny went, reluctantly. Halfway through the duologue, the official prompter returned with the remark that he had been having a bit of a smoke on the terrace, and that his watch had gone wrong. Leaving him to discuss the point with Charteris, Spenny slipped quietly away. The delay, however, had had the effect of counteracting the uplifting effects of the mums. The British lion required a fresh fillip. He went to his room to administer it. By the time he emerged, he was feeling just right for the task at hand. A momentary doubt occurred to him, 
as to whether it would not be a good thing to go down and pull Sir Thomas's nose as a preliminary to the proceedings. But he put the temptation aside, business before pleasure. With a jaunty, if somewhat unsteady, step, he climbed the stairs to the floor above and made his way down the corridor to Sir Thomas's room. He switched on the light and went to the dressing table. The drawer was locked, but in his present mood, Spenny, like love, laughed at locksmiths. He grasped the handle and threw his weight into a sudden tug. The drawer came out with a report like a pistol shot. There, said his lordship, wagging his head severely. In the drawer lay the four banknotes. The sight of them brought back his grievance with a rush. He would teach Sir Thomas to treat him like a kid. He would show him. He was removing the notes, frowning fiercely the while, when he heard a cry of surprise from behind him. He turned to see Molly. She was still dressed in the evening gown she had worn at dinner, and her eyes were round with wonder. A few moments earlier, as she was seeking her room in order to change her costume for the theatricals, she had almost reached the end of the corridor that led to the landing when she observed his lordship, flushed of face and moving like some restive charger, come curvetting out of his bedroom in a dazzling suit of tweeds and make his way upstairs. Ever since their mutual encounter with Sir Thomas before dinner, she had been hoping for a chance of seeing Spenny alone. She had not failed to notice his depression during the meal, and her good little heart had been troubled at the thought that she must have been responsible for it. She knew that, for some reason, what she had said about the letter had brought his lordship into his uncle's bad books, and she wanted to find him and say she was sorry. Accordingly, she had followed him. His lordship, still in the war-horse vein, had made the pace upstairs too hot, and had disappeared while she was still halfway up. She had arrived at the top just in time to see him turn down the passage into Sir Thomas's dressing room. She could not think what his object might be. She knew that Sir Thomas was downstairs, so it could not be from the idea of a chat with him that Spenny was seeking the dressing room. Faint, yet pursuing, she followed on his trail, and arrived in the doorway just as the pistol report of the burst lock rang out. She stood looking at him blankly. He was holding a drawer in one hand, why she could not imagine. Lord Drever, she exclaimed. The somber determination of his lordship's face melted into a twisty but kindly smile. Good, he said, perhaps a trifle thickly. Good, glad you've come. We're pals. He said so, on the stairs, for dinner. Very glad you've come. Won't you sit down? He waved the drawer benevolently, by way of making her free of the room. The movement disturbed one of the banknotes, which fluttered in Molly's direction and fell at her feet. She stooped and picked it up. When she saw what it was, her bewilderment increased. But, but, she said. His lordship beamed upon her with a pebble-beached smile of indescribable goodwill. Sit down, he urged. We're pals. No call with you. Your good friend. Call Uncle Thomas. But, Lord Drever, what are you doing? What was that noise I heard? Opening draw, said his lordship affably. But, she looked again at what she had in her hand. But this is a five-pound note. Five pound note, said his lordship. Quite right. Three more of them in here. Still she could not understand. But were you stealing them? His lordship drew himself up, 
No, he said. No, not stealing, no. Then, like this, before dinner, old boy, friendly as you please, couldn't do enough for me, touched him for twenty of the best and got away with it. So far, all well. Then met you on stairs, and you let cat out of bag. But why? Surely. His lordship gave the drawer a dignified wave. Not blaming you, he said magnanimously. Not your fault. Misfortune. You didn't know about letter. About the letter? said Molly. Yes, what was the trouble about the letter? I knew something was wrong directly I had said that I wrote it. Trouble was, said his lordship. That old boy thought it was a love letter. Didn't undeceive him. You didn't tell him? Why? His lordship raised his eyebrows. Wanted to touch him twenty of the best, he explained simply. For the life of her, Molly could not help laughing. Don't laugh, protested his lordship, wounded. No joke, serious. Honor at stake. He removed the three notes and replaced the drawer. Honor of the drivers, he added, pocketing the money. Molly was horrified. But Lord Drever, she cried, you can't, you mustn't. You can't be going really to take that money. It's stealing. It isn't yours. You must put it back. His lordship wagged a forefinger very solemnly at her. That, he said, is where you make your error. Mine. Old boy gave them to me. Gave them to you? Then why did you break open the drawer? Old boy took them back again when he found out about letter. Then they don't belong to you. Yes, error, they do. Moral, right. Molly wrinkled her forehead in her agitation. Men of Lord Drever's type appeal to the motherly instinct of women. As a man, his lordship was a negligible quantity. He did not count. But as a willful child, to be kept out of trouble, he had a claim on Molly. She spoke soothingly. But Lord Drever, she began. Call me Spenny, he urged. We're pals, you said so. On stairs, everybody calls me Spenny, even Uncle Thomas. I'm going to pull his nose. He broke off suddenly, as one recollecting a forgotten appointment. Spenny, then, said Molly. You mustn't, Spenny, you mustn't, really. You, you look ripping in that dress, said his lordship, irrelevantly. Thank you, Spenny, dear, but listen. Molly spoke as if she were humoring a rebellious infant. You really mustn't take that money. You must put it back. See, I'm putting this note back. Give me the others, and I'll put them in the drawer, too. Then we'll shut the drawer, and nobody will know. She took the notes from him and replaced them in the drawer. He watched her thoughtfully, as if he were pondering the merits of her arguments. No, he said suddenly. No, must have them. Moral right, old boy. She pushed him gently away. Yes, yes, I know, she said. I know. It's a shame that you can't have them, but you mustn't take them. Don't you see that he would suspect you the moment he found they were gone, and then you'd get into trouble? Something in that, admitted his lordship. Of course there is, Spenny dear. I'm so glad you see. There they all are, safe again in the drawer. Now we can go downstairs again and... She stopped. She had closed the door earlier in the proceedings, but her quick ear caught the sound of a footstep in the passage outside. Quick, she whispered. 
taking his hand and darting to the electric light switch. Somebody's coming. We mustn't be caught here. They'd see the broken drawer, and you'd get into awful trouble. Quick. She pushed him behind the curtain where the clothes hung and switched off the light. From behind the curtain came the muffled voice of his lordship. It's Uncle Thomas. I'm coming out. Pull his nose. Be quiet. She sprang to the curtain and slipped noiselessly behind it. But I say, began his lordship. Hush. She gripped his arm. He subsided. The footsteps had halted outside the door. Then the handle turned slowly. The door opened and closed again with hardly a sound. The footsteps passed on into the room. Chapter 25 Explanations Jimmy, like his lordship, had been trapped at the beginning of the duologue and had not been able to get away till it was nearly over. He had been introduced by Lady Julia to an elderly and adhesive baronet who had recently spent ten days in New York and escape had not been won without a struggle. The baronet on his return to England had published a book entitled Modern America and Its People and it was with regard to the opinions expressed in this volume that he invited Jimmy's views. He had no wish to see the duologue, and it was only after the loss of much precious time that Jimmy was enabled to tear himself away on the plea of having to dress. He cursed the authority on modern America and its people freely as he ran upstairs. While the duologue was in progress, there had been no chance of Sir Thomas taking it into his head to visit his dressing room. He had been, as his valet detective had observed to Mr. Gaylor, too busy jollying along the swells. It would be the work of a few moments only to restore the necklace to its place. But for the tenacity of the elderly baronet, the thing would have been done by this time. Now, however, there was no knowing what might not happen. Anybody might come along the passage and see him. He had one point in his favor. There was no likelihood of the jewels being required by their owner till the conclusion of the theatricals. The part that Lady Julia had been persuaded by Charteris to play mercifully contained no scope for the display of gems. Before going down to dinner, Jimmy had locked the necklace in a drawer. It was still there, Spike having been able, apparently, to resist the temptation of recapturing it. Jimmy took it and went into the corridor. He looked up and down. There was nobody about. He shut his door and walked quickly in the direction of the dressing room. He had provided himself with an electric pocket torch, equipped with a reflector, which he was in the habit of carrying when on his travels. Once inside, having closed the door, he set this aglow and looked about him. Spike had given him minute directions as to the position of the jewel box. He found it without difficulty. To his untrained eye, it seemed tolerably massive and impregnable, but Spike had evidently known how to open it without much difficulty. The lid was shut, but it came up without an effort when he tried to raise it, and he saw that the lock had been broken. Spike's coming on, he said. He was dangling the necklace over the box, preparatory to dropping it in, when there was a quick rustle at the other side of the room. The curtain was plucked aside, and Molly came out. Jimmy! she cried. Jimmy's nerves were always in pretty good order, but at the sight of this apparition he visibly jumped. Great Scott! he said. The curtain again became agitated by some unseen force, violently this time, and from its depths a plaintive voice made itself heard. Dash it all, said the voice, I've stuck. There was another upheaval, and his lordship emerged, his yellow locks ruffled and upstanding, 
his face crimson. Caught my head in a coat or something, he explained at large. Hello, Pitt. Pressed rigidly against the wall, Molly had listened with growing astonishment to the movements on the other side of the curtain. Her mystification deepened every moment. It seemed to her that the room was still in darkness. She could hear the sound of breathing, and then the light of the torch caught her eye. Who could this be, and why had he not switched on the regular room lights? She strained her ears to catch a sound. For a while she heard nothing except the soft breathing. Then came a voice that she knew well, and abandoning her hiding place, she came out into the room and found Jimmy standing with a torch in his hand over some dark object in the corner of the room. It was a full minute after Jimmy's first exclamation of surprise before either of them spoke again. The light of the torch hurt Molly's eyes. She put up a hand to shade them. It seemed to her that they had been standing like this for years. Jimmy had not moved. There was something in his attitude that filled Molly with a vague fear. In the shadow behind the torch, he looked shapeless and inhuman. You're hurting my eyes, she said at last. I'm sorry, said Jimmy. I didn't think. Is that better? He turned the light from her face. Something in his voice and the apologetic haste with which he moved the torch seemed to relax the strain of the situation. The feeling of stunned surprise began to leave her. She found herself thinking coherently again. The relief was but momentary. Why was Jimmy in the room at this time? Why had he a torch? What had he been doing? The questions shot from her brain like sparks from an anvil. The darkness began to tear at her nerves. She felt along the wall for the switch and flooded the whole room with light. Jimmy laid down the torch and stood for a moment, undecided. He had concealed the necklace behind him. Now he brought it forward and dangled it silently before the eyes of Molly and his lordship. Excellent as were his motives for being in that room with the necklace in his hand, he could not help feeling, as he met Molly's startled gaze, quite as guilty as if his intentions had been altogether different. His lordship, having by this time pulled himself together to some extent, was the first to speak. I say, you know, what ho? he observed, not without emotion. What? Molly drew back. Jimmy, you were... Oh, you can't have been. Looks jolly like it, said his lordship judicially. I wasn't, said Jimmy. I was putting them back. Putting them back? Pit, old man, said his lordship solemnly. That sounds a bit thin. Dreaver, old man, said Jimmy. I know it does, but it's the truth. His lordship's manner became kindly. Now look here, pit, old son, he said. There's nothing to worry about. We're all pals here. You can pitch it straight to us. We won't give you away. We... Be quiet, cried Molly. Jimmy! Her voice was strained. She spoke with an effort. She was suffering torments. The words her father had said to her on the terrace were pouring back into her mind. She seemed to hear his voice now, cool and confident, warning her against Jimmy, saying that he was crooked. There was a curious whirring in her head. Everything in the room was growing large and misty. She heard Lord Drever begin to say something that sounded as if someone were speaking at the end of a telephone. And then she was aware that Jimmy was holding her in his arms and calling to Lord Drever to bring water. When a girl goes like that, said his lordship with an insufferable air of omniscience, you want to cut her? Come along, said Jimmy. 
Are you going to be a week getting that water? His lordship proceeded to soak a sponge without further parley. But as he carried his dripping burden across the room, Molly recovered. She tried weakly to free herself. Jimmy helped her to a chair. He had dropped the necklace on the floor, and Lord Drever nearly trod on it. What ho? observed his lordship, picking it up. Go easy with the jewelry. Jimmy was bending over Molly. Neither of them seemed to be aware of his lordship's presence. Spenny was the sort of person whose existence is apt to be forgotten. Jimmy had had a flash of intuition. For the first time, it had occurred to him that Mr. McEckern might have hinted to Molly something of his own suspicions. Molly, dear, he said, it isn't what you think. I can explain everything. Do you feel better now? Can you listen? I can explain everything. Pete, old boy, protested his lordship, you don't understand. We aren't going to give you away. We're all... Jimmy ignored him. Molly, listen, he said. She sat up. Go on, Jimmy, she said. I wasn't stealing the necklace. I was putting it back. The man who came to the castle with me, Spike Mullins, took it this afternoon and brought it to me. Spike Mullins. Molly remembered that name. He thinks I am a crook, a sort of raffles. It was my fault. I was a fool. It all began that night in New York, when we met at your house. I had been to the opening performance of a play called Love the Cracksman, one of those burglar plays. Jolly good show, interpolated his lordship, chattily. It was in the circle over here. I went twice. A friend of mine, a man named Mifflin, had been playing the hero in it, and after the show at the club, he started in talking about the art of burglary. He'd been studying it, and I said that anybody could burglar a house and in another minute it somehow happened that I had made a bet that I would do it that night. Heaven knows whether I really meant to, but that same night this man Mullins broke into my flat, and I caught him. We got into conversation, and I worked off on him a lot of technical stuff I'd heard from this actor friend of mine, and he jumped to the conclusion that I was an expert. And then it suddenly occurred to me that it would be a good joke on Mifflin if I went out with Mullins and did break into a house. I wasn't in the mood to think what a fool I was at the time. Well, anyway, we went out, and, well, that's how it all happened. And then I met Spike in London, down and out, and brought him here. He looked at her, anxiously. It did not need his lordship's owlish expression of doubt to tell him how weak his story must sound. He had felt it even as he was telling it. He was bound to admit that if ever a story rang false in every sentence, it was this one. Pit, old man, said his lordship, shaking his head, more in sorrow than in anger. It won't do, old top. What's the point of putting up any old yarn like that? Don't you see? What I mean is, it's not as if we minded. Don't I keep telling you we're all pals here? I've often thought what a jolly good fellow old Raffles was. A regular sportsman. I don't blame a chappie for doing the gentleman burglar touch. Seems to me it's a dashed sporting... Molly turned on him suddenly cutting short his views on the ethics of gentlemanly theft in a blaze of indignation. What do you mean? she cried. Do you think I don't believe every word Jimmy has said? His lordship jumped. Well, don't you know, it seemed to me a bit thin. What I mean is... He met Molly's eye. Oh, well, he concluded lamely. Molly turned to Jimmy. Jimmy, of course I believe you. I believe every word. Molly... His lordship looked on, marveling. 
the thought crossed his mind that he had lost the ideal wife. A girl who would believe any old yarn a fellow cared to? If it hadn't been for Katie. For a moment he almost felt sad. Jimmy and Molly were looking at each other in silence. From the expression on their faces, his lordship gathered that his existence had once more been forgotten. He saw her hold out her hands to Jimmy, and it seemed to him that the time had come to look away. It was embarrassing for a chap. He looked away. The next moment the door opened and closed again and she was gone. He looked at Jimmy. Jimmy was still apparently unconscious of his presence. His lordship coughed. Pit, old man. Hello, said Jimmy, coming out of his thoughts with a start. You still here? By the way, he eyed Lord Drever curiously. I never thought of asking before. What on earth are you doing here? Why were you behind the curtain? Were you playing hide-and-seek? His lordship was not one of those who invent circumstantial stories easily on the spur of the moment. He searched rapidly for something that would pass muster, then abandoned the hopeless struggle. After all, why not be frank? He still believed Jimmy to be of the class of the hero of love, the cracksman. There would be no harm in confiding in him. He was a good fellow, a kindred soul, and would sympathize. It's like this, he said and having prefaced his narrative with the sound remark that he had been a bit of an ass, he gave Jimmy a summary of recent events. What? said Jimmy. You taught Hargate piquet? Why, my dear man, he was playing piquet like a professor when you were in short frocks. He's a wonder at it. His lordship started. How's that? he said. You don't know him, do you? I met him in New York at the Strollers Club. A pal of mine, an actor, this fellow Mifflin I mentioned just now, put him up as a guest. He coined money at Piquet. And there were some pretty useful players in the place, too. I don't wonder you found him a promising pupil. Then, well then, why, dash it, then he's a bally sharper. You're a genius at crisp description, said Jimmy. You've got him summed up to Wright's first shot. I shan't pay him a bally penny. Of course not. If he makes any objection, refer him to me. His lordship's relief was extreme. The more overpowering effects of the elixir had passed away, and he saw now, what he had not seen in his more exuberant frame of mind, the cloud of suspicion that must have hung over him when the loss of the banknotes was discovered. He wiped his forehead. By Jove, he said, that's something off my mind. By George, I feel like a two-year-old. I say, you're a dashed good sort, Pitt. You flatter me, said Jimmy. I strive to please. I say, Pitt, that yarn you told us just now, the bet and all that, honestly, you don't mean to say that was true, was it? I mean, by Jove, I've got an idea. We live in stirring times. Did you say your actor pal's name was Mifflin? He broke off suddenly before Jimmy could answer. Great Scott, he whispered. What's that? Good Lord, somebody's coming. He dived behind the curtain like a rabbit. The drapery had only just ceased to shake when the door opened and Sir Thomas Blunt walked in. Chapter 26 Stirring Times for Sir Thomas For a man whose intentions toward the jewels and their owner were so innocent and even benevolent, Jimmy was in a singularly compromising position. It would have been difficult, even under more favorable conditions, to have explained to Sir Thomas's satisfaction his presence in his dressing room. As things stood, it was even harder. 
for his lordship's last action before seeking cover had been to fling the necklace from him like a burning coal. For the second time in ten minutes, it had fallen to the carpet, and it was just as Jimmy straightened himself after picking it up that Sir Thomas got a full view of him. The knight stood in the doorway, his face expressing the most lively astonishment. His bulging eyes were fixed upon the necklace in Jimmy's hand. Jimmy could see him struggling to find words to cope with so special a situation, and felt rather sorry for him. Excitement of this kind was bad for a short-necked man of Sir Thomas's type. With kindly tact, he endeavoured to help his host out. "'Good evening,' he said pleasantly. Sir Thomas stammered. He was gradually nearing speech. "'What? What? What?' he said. "'Out with it,' said Jimmy. "'What?' "'I knew a man once in South Dakota who stammered,' said Jimmy. "'He used to chew dog biscuit while he was speaking. "'It cured him, besides being nutritious. "'Another good way is to count ten while you're thinking what to say, "'and then get it out quick.' "'You! You blackguard!' "'Jimmy placed the necklace carefully on the dressing table. "'Then he turned to Sir Thomas, with his hands thrust into his pockets. "'Over the knight's head, he could see the folds of the curtain quivering gently.' as if stirred by some zephyr. Evidently the drama of the situation was not lost on Hildebrand Spencer, 12th Earl of Drever. Nor was it lost on Jimmy. This was precisely the sort of situation that appealed to him. He had his plan of action clearly mapped out. He knew it would be useless to tell the knight the true facts of the case. Sir Thomas was as deficient in simple faith as in Norman blood. Though a Londoner by birth, he had one, at least, of the characteristic traits of the natives of Missouri. To all appearances, this was a tight corner, but Jimmy fancied that he saw his way out of it. Meanwhile, the situation appealed to him. Curiously enough, it was almost identical with the big scene in Act Three of Love the Cracksman, in which Arthur Mifflin had made such a hit as the debonair burglar. Jimmy proceeded to give his own idea of what the rendering of a debonair burglar should be. Arthur Mifflin had lighted a cigarette and had shot out smoke rings and repartee alternately. A cigarette would have been a great help here, but Jimmy prepared to do his best without properties. So, so it's you, is it? said Sir Thomas. Who told you? Thief! Low thief! Come now, protested Jimmy. Why low? Just because you don't know me over here, why scorn me? How do you know I haven't got a big American reputation? For all you can tell, I may be Boston Billy, or Sacramento Sam, or someone. Let us preserve the decencies of debate. I had my suspicions of you. I had my suspicions from the first, when I heard that my idiot of a nephew had made a casual friend in London. So this was what you were, a thief, who— I don't mind personally, interrupted Jimmy. But I hope, if ever you mix with cracksmen, you won't go calling them thieves. They are frightfully sensitive. You see, there's a world of difference between the two branches of the profession, and a good deal of snobbish caste prejudice. Let us suppose that you were an actor-manager. How would you enjoy being called a super? You see the idea, don't you? You'd hurt their feelings. Now, an ordinary thief would probably use violence in a case like this, but violence, except in extreme cases— I hope this won't be one of them, is contrary, I understand, to Cracksman's etiquette. On the other hand, Sir Thomas, candour compels me to add that I have you covered. There was a pipe in the pocket of his coat. 
he thrust the stem earnestly against the lining. Sir Thomas eyed the protuberance apprehensively and turned a little pale. Jimmy was scowling ferociously. Arthur Mifflin's scowl in Act Three had been much admired. My gun, said Jimmy, is, as you see, in my pocket. I always shoot from the pocket, in spite of the tailor's bills. The little fellow is loaded and cocked. He's pointing straight at your diamond solitaire, that fatal spot. No one has ever been hit in the diamond solitaire and survived. My finger is on the trigger, so I should recommend you not to touch that bell you are looking at. There are other reasons why you shouldn't, but those I will go into presently. Sir Thomas's hand wavered. Do if you like, of course, said Jimmy, agreeably. It's your house, but I shouldn't. I am a dead shot at a yard and a half. You wouldn't believe the number of sitting haystacks I've picked off at that distance. I just can't miss. On second thoughts I shan't fire to kill you. Let us be humane on this joyful occasion. I shall just smash your knees. Painful, but not fatal. He waggled the pipe suggestively. Sir Thomas blenched. His hand fell to his side. Great, said Jimmy. After all, why should you be in a hurry to break up this very pleasant little meeting? I'm sure I'm not. Let us chat. How are the theatricals going? Was the duologue a success? Wait till you see our show. Three of us knew our lines at the dress rehearsal. Sir Thomas had backed away from the bell, but the retreat was merely for the convenience of the moment. He understood that it might be injudicious to press the button just then, but he had recovered his composure by this time, and he saw that ultimately the game must be his. His face resumed its normal hue. Automatically his hands began to move towards his coattails, his feet to spread themselves. Jimmy noted with a smile these signs of restored complacency. He hoped ere long to upset that complacency somewhat. Sir Thomas addressed himself to making Jimmy's position clear to him. How, may I ask, he said, do you propose to leave the castle? Won't you let me have the automobile, said Jimmy, but I guess I shan't be leaving just yet. Sir Thomas laughed shortly. No, he said. No, I fancy not. I am with you there. Great minds, said Jimmy. I shouldn't be surprised if we thought alike on all sorts of subjects. Just think how you came round to my views on ringing bells. But what made you fancy that I intended to leave the castle? I should hardly have supposed that you would be anxious to stay. On the contrary, it's the one place I have been in in the last two years that I have felt really satisfied with. Usually I want to move on after a week, but I could stop here forever. I am afraid, Mr. Pitt. By the way, an alias, of course. Jimmy shook his head. I fear not, he said. If I had chosen an alias, it would have been... Tresillian or Trevelyan or something. I call Pitt a poor thing in names. I once knew a man named Ronald Shalesmore, lucky devil. Sir Thomas returned to the point on which he had been about to touch. I am afraid, Mr. Pitt, he said, that you hardly realize your position. No, said Jimmy, interested. I find you in the act of stealing my wife's necklace. Would there be any use in telling you that I was not stealing it, but putting it back? Sir Thomas raised his eyebrows in silence. No, said Jimmy. I was afraid not. You were saying? I find you in the act of stealing my wife's necklace, proceeded Sir Thomas. And because for the moment you succeed in postponing arrest by threatening me with a revolver, 
An agitated look came into Jimmy's face. Great Scott, he cried. He felt hastily in his pocket. Yes, he said. As I had begun to fear, I owe you an apology, Sir Thomas. He went on with manly dignity, producing the briar. I am entirely to blame. How the mistake arose, I cannot imagine, but I find it isn't a revolver after all. Sir Thomas's cheeks took on a richer tint of purple. He glared dumbly at the pipe. In the excitement of the moment, I guess, began Jimmy. Sir Thomas interrupted. The recollection of his needless panic rankled within him. You! 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 Count ten! You! What do you propose to gain by this buffoonery? I am at a loss! How can you say such savage things? protested Jimmy. Not buffoonery! Wit! Esprit! Flow of soul such as circulates daily in the best society! Sir Thomas almost leaped toward the bell. With his finger on it, he turned to deliver a final speech. I believe you're insane, he cried, but I'll have no more of it. I've endured this foolery long enough. I'll... Just one moment, said Jimmy. I said just now that there were reasons behind the revolt. Well, pipe, why you should not ring that bell. One of them is that all the servants will be in their places in the audience, so that there won't be anyone to answer it, but that's not the most convincing reason. Will you listen to one more before getting busy? I see your game. Don't imagine for a moment that you can trick me. Nothing could be further. You fancy you can gain time by talking and find some way to escape. But I don't want to escape. Don't you realize that in about ten minutes I am due to play an important part in a great drama on the stage? I'll keep you here, I tell you. You'll leave this room, said Sir Thomas grandly, over my body. Steeplechasing in the home, murmured Jimmy. No more dull evenings. But listen, do listen. I won't keep you a minute, and if you want to push that bell after I'm through, you may push it six inches into the wall, if you like. Well, said Sir Thomas, shortly, would you like me to lead gently up to what I want to say, gradually preparing you for the reception of the news, or shall I? The knight took out his watch. I shall give you one minute, he said. Heavens, I must hustle. How many seconds have I got now? If you have anything to say, say it. Very well, then, said Jimmy. It's only this. That necklace is a fraud. The diamonds aren't diamonds at all. They are paste. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of The Intrusion of Jimmy, Part 6 of 7, by P.G. Woodhouse. If you've enjoyed this episode, please become a supporter so we can keep a good thing going. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a supporter today. And thanks for pitching in. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me next time and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. <laughs>